Hi, Pastor John here. Welcome to our broadcast. We all know we're supposed to learn from our mistakes, but are there lessons to be learned in our successes? We find the answer in the story of a woman named Abigail, who was the wife of a wealthy but foolish Nabal. Our lesson occurs in 1 Samuel 25 when David shows up, flushed from his own success of trusting God in dealing with Saul. Let's see what happens. So I'd like you to turn to 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 25. But we're going to be looking at preceding chapters as well. And while you're turning there, let me just tell you, I'd started working at a car dealership in Vienna. And in my third month there, I became salesperson of the month. I got a plaque. They gave me a little presentation in front of everybody. Uh, I, I'm going to tell you something. I was, I was just walking through. I'm the salesperson. I hung a plaque on my wall. I stepped back and made sure it was centered so the people who could walk into my office could see it immediately. And I just kind of sat underneath that plaque uh, for uh, several days, just kind of basking in the glory of being salesperson of the month. So the manager at that point said, be careful. And, and what he said was, Success can be dangerous. Is that true? I mean, we, we're all looking for success, aren't we? We're all looking to succeed at what we're doing, and then when we do that, we feel pretty good. Can it actually be dangerous? Now, we're going to find out that it can be in the story of Abigail, who lived with her husband Nabal in the wilderness of Maon, which happened to be where David went to run away from Saul. And so the background of all this actually starts in chapters 23 and 24 of 1 Samuel. David has an encounter with Saul in a cave in En Gedi. Now Saul's been insulting David. He's been trying to kill him. He's been trying to run him down. I mean, it just hasn't been a good relationship. Saul was anointed king of Israel. Uh, and he kind of gave up the throne when he, when he made a sacrifice that he wasn't supposed to make. And uh, David was then anointed. But long before David took the throne, he was no, anointed to be king. And Saul was the acting king. And David's men are running around all the time going, why don't you do something about this? Why don't you get the opportunity? Why don't you just kill Saul? Well, David has that opportunity in this cave in En Gedi, which is just off of the... the um, the salt sea. So his men encourage him to do so, and, and he refuses to do it, telling them that he's not going to put his hand on the Lord's anointed. So when Saul finds out what David did, he could have killed him, but he didn't. Saul reconciles with David again. It seems to be a pattern with Saul. He's constantly reconciling with David. And we see this in 1 Samuel 24, 17. Saul says to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, Saul admits he's an enemy of David, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me 
therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Now, we need to remember this as the story about Abigail progresses. Saul says, swear you're not going to kill all the men in my family. It's literally what he's saying. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. So this is an incredible example of what can happen when someone refuses to take things into their own hands. When they decide that they're going to trust God to handle the situation. So the result is Saul's heart is broken. He sees the error of his ways. David's men are changed. They've got more respect for him than they did before because he didn't do the bad thing. He did the good thing. And David, David kind of basks in the, in the blessing of leaving it up to the Lord to do all the heavy lifting in this situation. In a way, David was successful in how he dealt with Saul. He did a good job. And we know David wasn't a particularly proud man. He probably wasn't walking around showing everybody the plaque on his wall like I did. But we also know that while it should be easy to learn from our mistakes, it's not always so easy to to learn from our successes. And we can make the mistake of not learning from our successes, of getting complacent in our successes. So that brings us up to our passage today. We're going to see how David so easily forgets everything he's learned in his encounters with Saul. And so David's going to put this aside in the story of Abigail. Now, this is number nine in our ongoing series and lessons for today from the OT. And we're going to look at Abigail's two husbands. We'll see Abigail and Nebel in 1 Samuel 25, 1 through 18. And then we'll see Abigail and David in 1 Samuel 25, 19 through 44. So let's take a look at Abigail and Nabal. 1 Samuel 25, 1. Now Samuel died. This is just here to show us that some time has progressed. Maybe not a lot, but there's a divider between what happens in 24 and 25. Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him. And they buried him in his house at Ramah. And David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now this is a general area of Maon. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. Here's a map. Carmel is a relatively small village uh, just north of where this guy lived. He probably had a large parcel of property there. And the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, this is important. This is endemic to our story. So Carmel is a small village. Uh, Nebel has brought his 3,000 sheep into town to shear them. And just as a general rule of thumb, one sheep can produce about two pounds of wool. 3,000 sheep would produce three tons of wool. We're talking about a whole lot of wool here. So the picture that we should see is Carmel is bustling with activity. There's, there's business all over the place. Money is flowing, people are eating and and having a good time. There's abundance left and right, lots of joy in the town, and perhaps, maybe just perhaps, a little bit of a spirit of generosity and kindness. You know how it is when times are good. They were having a good time. 
Verse 3, now the name of the man was Nabal. Loosely translated, this means foolish. I don't know who names their kid foolish, but, you know, we've seen sickly and fatal and that sort of thing. So the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. Again, loosely translated, the name of Abigail is joy of the father. She's a good woman. The woman was discerning. Now, the word here means she's good of understanding. She's smart. And it's no coincidence that the author of 1 Samuel has used the same words to describe David in 1 Samuel 18. So the author is trying to show us that there's some commonality between Abigail and David. Not in a, in a bad way, but that they would understand each other. They would be able to communicate with each other. So she was discerning and beautiful, but the man, Nabal, was harsh and badly behaved. Actually, he was evil. He was a Calebite. That's one of those phrases that you kind of glaze over. But if you go back and take a look at the history in 1 Chronicles 2, we find out that Caleb's clan were the founders of a small town called Bethlehem. Bethlehem was David's hometown. Nabal and David are kinsmen. They are related. We would probably call them second or third cousins or something like that. But there's a commonality to their backgrounds. And the scene is set. Abigail and David are smart and discerning. Both of them are good people. Nabal is evil. He is foolish. And Nabal and David are related. This means something in their culture. It means that when they encounter each other, they have a duty and an obligation to see to each other's welfare, to take care of each other. We're going to find out David's already done that. So David sends ten men to Nabal. He's on the run from, from Saul. He's decided he's not going to attack him. So, and, and he's out in the wilderness. This is, this is a fairly bleak area. And he gives his men, his ten men, three things to do. They're to deliver first a blessing to Nabal. This would be culturally appropriate to bless him. They're to remind Nabal that David protected Nabal's men in the wilderness. His servants and his flocks were protected from the Philistines who were raiding the region. They were killing people, taking livestock, burning things down. So we see that in, in 1 Samuel 23. And the third thing, they're to ask for a goodwill and supportive gesture from Nabal towards David's men, David's kinsmen. In other words, they're there to request that David be treated the same way by Nabal that David treated Nabal's men. So that was expected of kinsmen, uh, or even if somebody had only done a favor for you, it's kind of the least you could do. Verse 9, when David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who's David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Now, Nabal knows David's story. He's famous. He knows what's been going on. He knows that David is running from Saul. And literally he goes, David, who is that guy? He's nothing but a runaway slave. There are a lot of runaway slaves in this area. 
So he totally minimizes David and disrespects him. In verse 11, watch this. Count the pronouns. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? Nabal sends the emissaries away. And what we find out is in one sentence, he's using the, the, the self-addressed pronoun seven times. He's not only foolish, he's self-centered. He's consumed with himself. David's nobody. Do you know who I am? Look at all these sheep. Look at all this wool. Look at all these happy people. I've done this. What has David done other than run from Saul? Verse 12. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. I love David because he's a godly man, right? I mean, he just did this whole thing. Oh, don't touch the Lord's anointed. So David said to his men in verse 13, Every man strap on his sword. We're going to fight. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. He said, I'm taking part in this battle. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. The baggage is everything that's behind. The women, their supplies, livestock, the whole thing. Verse 14, But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet those men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we didn't miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, really talking about a wall between them and the Philistines, both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do, Abigail, Nabal's wife, for harm is determined against our master and against all his house, against our master and against us. And he's such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. So David's reaction, quick, and it's harsh. Maybe even a bit too quick. Maybe even a bit too harsh. He's been slighted. His honor has been impinged. And he wants to go to war. And this godly man who just made this wise decision in sparing Saul now wants to kill Nabal and all of the men around Nabal because Nabal will not give his men some snacks. You know what they were looking for? We're hungry. Can you give us some food? Nabal says, no, David's going to go in and kill everybody. So here's, here's the picture that the author is painting for us so far. Nabal, in modern terms, is a jerk, right? <laughs> He's not acting rightly. Everyone knows it. Everyone knows, including his wife, so much so that when danger is imminent, when it's knocking on their door, the servants go to Abigail, not to Nabal. They want to get her caught up on everything. They're going to warn her. Nabal's wife is smart. She's beautiful. She has a lot of things in common with David. And Nabal has foolishly provoked and dishonored David. 
David's a famous and mighty warrior. Now, now again, I've, I've spoken about this several times. They're in a culture that is built on honor and shame. I mean, if you're shamed, you might as well just kill yourself because it, it not only goes to you, it goes to your family, it goes to your village, it goes to your tribe, it goes to your nation, it goes to your God. If you're honored, it goes to your family, village, the whole thing. So David has been hurt here. And now he faces a dilemma. Because in the cave with Saul, he trusted the Lord to take care of his enemy. Now he faces another perceived enemy, not just Nabal, but his whole camp. And he wants to take things into his own hands. Now, maybe, maybe we understand this. David is young. He's powerful. He's been successful. God has anointed and blessed him. And the question is, will he now rely on his own strength, on his own wisdom, and deliver himself? And the real question is, has he learned anything from his encounter with Saul in the cave? And the irony here is that everybody in this scenario sees the problem Except David and Nabal. They see, all, all they see is their pride, and it's getting in the way, and it's about to cause a lot of pain and a lot of grief for everyone. So, at this point in our story, David, who is wise and discerning, David, who is wise and discerning, is unwisely being led by his emotions and by his anger. He's upset. And he's getting carried away with it. Nabal's a foolish man poking a stick at a lion. Probably knows it. And in between these two guys is Abigail. A wise woman and Nabal's wife. Let's take a look at Abigail and David. Verse 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves two skins of wine, and five sheep already prepared, and five seahs of parched grain, and a hundred clusters of raisins, and two hundred cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. So Abigail's offerings, it sounds like a lot, but they're fairly meager, and they really would not have been missed in Nabal's estate. He had so much. This, this is just a pittance, particularly at shearing time. So it would be enough to feed David's men, but only for a short time, the, the temporary and verse 19, and she said to her young men, go on before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. Now, I, I just want you to take a look at this for just a moment from the perception of the young men, because David is vowed to kill them. <laughs> and, and Abigail's going, go, go before me, you go first. They're like, okay, you know, he's mad at us. Okay, and the text doesn't describe Abigail's motives here, doesn't tell us why she's doing all that, it, but it's, it's fairly apparent that she intends to make amends for this slight that Nabal has called David. And, and she wants to avoid a catastrophe. She's heard about David. She knows about how mighty he is. And she knows that her husband has heaped shame on David. She's aware of this. So Abigail's placing herself in a dangerous position here in a number of different ways. Number one, she's risking her reputation, a married woman going to meet a, a man that's not her husband, and shows, shows she's risking her reputation by arranging this clandestine meeting, and she's also risking her life because that man is 
the enemy of her husband. In that culture, Nabal would have had the right to execute his wife. Verse 20, And she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain. Behold, and David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. That are, the description here, they're meeting in a ravine. Uh, it's very private. Now David had said, verse 21, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. And now David is no longer calling Nabal by his name. He's not even going to mention his name. Ironically, David is treating Nabal the way Saul treated David. If you go back and you look at it, Saul gets to the point where he won't even, he talks about this fellow, this man, this rebel, so on and so forth. David's anger has blinded him to what's going on. And David says in verse 22, God do so to the enemies of David's and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Now this is a very carefully worded curse. Literally what David is saying is, may God kill my enemies if I don't. If I don't get all of them, may God finish off the rest of these people who are my enemies. And what David doesn't know, the only enemy he has in this entire little vignette is Nabal. Keep that in mind as we go forward. David promised Saul that he would not wipe his name out from the face of the earth. But it's exactly what he wants to do with Nabal. Kill him, all the males around him, all his servants, and in particular, any sons he might have. The lineage ends here. You see, you see how easy it is to associate our enemy with the people who associate with him? Make these assumptions since they talk to each other, since they go to this place together, live in the same neighborhood, maybe even part of the same family. Well, they must be my enemies too. Now, I think we probably get that when it comes to families. Do we get that when it comes to political parties? Well, do we get that when it comes to nationalities? Whoa, that's my enemy. They're from the same nation. They must be my enemy. I've got a friend who emigrated here from Russia 42 years ago. He's been sending out apologies to everybody he knows, saying, I don't live in Russia anymore. I sent him a note and said, why are you doing this? So we all know who you are. He said, yes, but I'm associated with those people. And I get hate mail every day. 42 years getting hate mail because he's from Russia. We do this. We do it. We associate with our enemy, the one who hurt us, the one who shamed us, the one who causes grief. All of the people who associate with him. And that's a mistake that David's making here. It's another one. By assuming everyone in Nabal's camp is his enemy. Abigail approaches David. It's a risky move. She calls herself David's servant. 
She falls down at his feet. This is a sign in the culture of saying, please have mercy upon me. I know you have power over me. I know you have authority over me. I know you have the capability to execute me right here because you think, because I'm married to this foolish man over here, that I'm your enemy. Have mercy on me. And then she literally blames herself for the slight that Nabal is done. How many of us are willing to do that? How many of us are willing to say, I'm sorry somebody I know hurt you? I wish I could have done more. I wish I could have been there. This is what Abigail is doing. And if I'd have known about this, maybe I could have done something, but I didn't know. I'm sorry this happened to you. I'm sorry my husband did this to you. She's implying that things would have been different. She says her husband's name is foolish, and that's exactly what he's doing. He's acting like a fool. Then Abigail says this to David, verse 26. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt, parenthetically, I would say so far, and from saving with your own hand. Watch that. Abigail says, God has intervened. Realize that this is a God moment here. He sent me to save you from blood guilt. He's also kept you from determining your own fate. God is trying to keep you from taking things in your own hands and making a bigger mess out of this than it already is. And in mind, David's mind, I've got to believe there have got to be echoes of how Saul has treated David and David's treated Saul coming to him. He's about to undo the trust that he had in God and take matters into his own hands. And Abigail acknowledges that David has enemies and that they, those enemies are as foolish as Nabal, but intrinsically what she's saying, it's not me. It's not these guys. They're not your enemies. Now then let your enemies, let your true enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Verse 27 and 28. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. And Abigail is asking, can these gifts do something to assuage your anger? Can we make this right, right here, right now between you and me? She knows David is, is at the beginning of a dynasty. She's a godly enough woman to know what's going on here. She says in verse, the second half of verse 28, For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, a lasting house, a dynasty, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. It's a warning. What you're about to do is evil. Don't let this happen. David's not just the beginning of a dynasty He's a dynasty founded and protected by the power of God. What Abigail is saying is the power of God has been with you. Why would you do this thing? Verse 29, she says, If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that she, he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. What she's saying is, when you become the king of Israel, you're not going to have to look back on this moment and 
realize that you made a huge mistake. You've got evil in, in your background. You can avoid this right here, right now. You don't have to save yourself, David. Don't we want to do that, though? When we get angry, when we get worked up about something, don't, don't we want to save ourselves? Don't we want to get in there and mix it up and fight for what's right? Throw the gauntlet down? Vanquish the enemy? Take things in our own hands? If God's not going to do something, I will. Or maybe, maybe we convince ourselves that somehow we're more righteous and worthy than the person who's opposing us. And so we're justified in doing what we're about to do. Maybe David had some of those feelings. And Abigail's standing there going, really? Then she says in the second half of 31, and when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. David pauses for a moment. He absorbs all this. In verse 32, he says to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion. And blessed be you, Abigail, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, Unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. I was going to wipe them all out. And David received from her hand what she had brought. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. So Abigail goes home in peace. The war is averted. When she gets there, Nabal is drunk, and she can't really talk to him, but she tells him the next day everything that happened, and Nabal collapses. And ten days later, verse 38, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, verse 39, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail and took her as his wife. Wow. God answers David's prayer. Slays all of David's enemies in this story. The problem is there was only one. It was Nabal. Abigail becomes David's wife. One of them... That's another story. We'll get to some other time. <laughs> so we see Abigail's two husbands here. It's an amazing thing. Abigail and Nabal. Nabal was a proud, foolish man, and he was evil. Everyone knew it but him. Even the servants understood what was going on. And, and you've got to wonder, Abigail must have spent a lot of time undoing Nabal's mistakes. The servants knew enough to go to her. She intervenes for her husband's ungodly treatment of a godly man. And Abigail, as far as we can tell, is a devout, godly woman. She trusts the Lord. She's a Jew. 
She didn't defy her husband, but neither did she participate in Nabal's sin. Note that. And we saw Abigail and David. When Abigail meets David, she humbles herself. She reminds him of his calling. And she appeals to his godly heart. Notice this. She she doesn't go and correct him. She doesn't rebuke him. She doesn't say, you know, you're as foolish as Nabal is. I can't believe you two guys are getting so uppity on all this and bumping chests and everything and making all these sword-rattling noises and everything. She just appeals to the godly nature of David. She doesn't domineer either one of the men. She says, avoid this evil. You're better than that. And because you're a godly man, you know better. And you don't want to have to look back on this day and regret what you're about to do. So there's a practical lesson here, isn't there? When hotheads begin to clash, when tempers begin to flare, it's time to turn towards God, not assert ourselves, not engage in the battle. Time to do godly things. It's time to remind folks of our call to be peacemakers, to humble ourselves instead of throwing fuel on the fire. There... There can't be a better lesson for a time like this. When everybody's throwing fuel on the fire. When everybody's feeling self-righteous. When everybody feels like they have to engage in the battle. And somehow, we think that if we just engage and we put the right words together, everybody will go, oh, I didn't realize how godly of a person you were. When's the last time you were on social media and managed to change somebody's thinking? I want to tell you something. The world is hostile towards the church. You know our movie night? I put it up on the Warrington Gospel Partnership website. And you get a chance to boost it. For five bucks or so, they say, oh, we're going to put this out to 30,000 people in your area. This is going to be the biggest, most successful thing you've ever seen. I don't know if you've looked at that, but the hate comments that we got. These people are delusional. They're evil. It comes from the heart of Satan. Somebody needs to shut them down. They're talking about us. And we, we can argue with them. We can throw fuel on the fire. We can do exactly what David was about to do. Or we can bless him. Because, see, our job is not to correct them. Our job is to show them Christ. Our job is not to have victory over them, to show them Christ. Our job is not to make sure that they understand how wrong they are. Our job is to be vessels of grace and mercy and love. David almost made that mistake. Do we? That's a practical lesson. Don't throw fuel on the fire. Here's another practical lesson. Success can be dangerous. Right? That's where we started. For three days, I walked around that dealership going, hey, have you seen my plaque? Right there in my office. You know, hey, let's go down there and have a cup of coffee. You can look at it. (laughs) On the fourth day, somebody introduced me to the owner of the dealership. 
said, this is John Kavakis. He was our salesperson of the month last month. He shook my hand and kind of had this funny smile on his face. And he said, really? How many of you sold this month? Well, I haven't really sold any yet this month. And he said, yeah, this is a business of what have you done for me today. Congratulations on last month. I'll get back to work. I went in the office and put the plaque in my drawer. <laughs> so success can be dangerous. It can make us complacent. We have to pay attention to what's going on. See, that's what happened with David and his dealing with Nabal. David was all for leaving Saul alone. He made a good and godly decision. He'd let God deal with those who oppress him. Had a huge impact on his men. But not too long after that, David decides he's going to take things into his own hands. He decides that he's going to bear an offense. It's a fairly slight offense. No, you can't have any food. Okay, I'm going to kill everybody you know. He's going to wreak vengeance on the man who denied him what he wanted. David needed to remember something, and it would be good for us to remember as well. And that would be where vengeance comes from. In his anger, he forgot. He wanted his pound of flesh from the ball. The writer of Hebrews knew exactly how difficult this can be when our emotions begin to take away with us. When they begin to rule over our, our rational thought, our godly thought. When, it, when, when we want to lash out, the, the writer of Hebrews knew that that wasn't the best thing to do. He knew how hard it could be to control our anger. He said in Hebrews 10, verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse the punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified has outraged the Spirit of grace. What he's saying is, you think you're going to have some impact on somebody? Leave it to God. If you think they're in bad shape now, why do you see what happens when God gets a hold of them? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's God who says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. I will judge my people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And in the end, we find out it's a lot worse for Nabal to fall into the hands of God than it is to the hands of David. It's not our job. It's not our job to wreak vengeance on those who oppose God. It's not even our job to wreak vengeance on those who oppose us. God's far better at defending himself than we are at defending him. I think we need to be honest about that. He doesn't need our help. God doesn't need our anger. Church is not in jeopardy of going away. What he needs is our testimonies. He needs our willingness to put his son on display in everything that we do. Okay, that, that's a good practical lesson. Amen? There's a deeper lesson here. Abigail became a mediator between two enemies. Didn't she? She stood between two warring factions. She did it by showing grace instead of greed. And in doing that, she brought peace. God shows us 
in Abigail that a mediator is necessary to stand between two enemies if there's any hope for peace. We're called. We're called to be those mediators. We know that. You've been hearing this for a long time. You're aware of it. You got that. Just like Abigail, we're called to be those mediators. And we should, we should answer that call gratefully and gladly because Paul says this in Romans 5, verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He's talking about us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're familiar with this, right? Verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. We, we who believe in Christ, were enemies of God. We needed a mediator to step in to reconcile ourselves to the Father. And God provided his son to die on the cross so that we could enter into that peace with our Father in heaven. God provided the perfect, sinless Abigail to mediate between him and us because we were his enemies and we needed a mediator. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this shadow of Christ we see in Abigail. We thank you for the shadow of ourselves that we see in David. Father, we thank you that we've got an advantage over David that he just didn't have. Lord, you've given us your spirit. He dwells inside us. He guides us and counsels us. Leads us in the everlasting way. Father, may we have the discipline to listen, to heed, and to walk those paths you've chosen for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor John. Let's hear what Paul has to say on this subject of turning our lives over to Christ and what he has to say for the church. Reading from Ephesians. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, 
according to the power at work with us, to him be the glory, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, go in peace and bless your neighbors in Jesus' name. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Click on the like button below, that little thumbs up icon. If you're listening on sermon audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd be blessed by that. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter at WBFVA. And we're also on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on giving and follow the links from there. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in historic downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.